from the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to talk with legal scholar and author Anita Hill about her new book, Believing Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence, as well as about the political, legal, and social moment we're all living in. And we'll hear about a study on criminal justice data that suggests we know very little about the children involved in criminal justice here in Michigan. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Very excited to talk a little bit later in the show with legal scholar and author Anita Hill. We're going to talk to her about her career, her thoughts on the political, legal, and social moment we're living in, as well as her new book, Believing Our 30 Year Journey to End Gender Violence. You don't want to miss that conversation which is coming up in about 20 minutes. But first, missing data is missing people. That's one of the lines that accompanies a new report from the Center for Behavioral Health and Justice at Wayne State University's School of Social Work. The report details all the ways that Michigan's criminal justice system is failing to keep records and data regarding inmates and conditions in detention facilities. Authors of the article write that, quote, the culmination of this research and analysis confirmed just how much information is missing and how much is unknown to the public and to practitioners about Michigan's justice systems. Here to talk about the study is its lead author and the dean of Wayne State University School of Social Work, Dr. Cheryl Kubiak. Dr. Kubiak, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. It's great to be here. So let's start with the key findings of this report. What were they? Well, I, I don't think that anyone who's in this field will find this at all surprising. Uh, we used primarily secondary sources, so data that was already available, to put together what we call a primer or a baseline to the Michigan criminal legal system for both adults and youth in the state. And so this report, um, funded through a combination of the Public Welfare Foundation and the Michigan Judicial Fund, really looks at what's missing. What do we know and what don't we know about the criminal legal system? And I think that for the listeners who aren't familiar, when we talk about the criminal legal system, we're talking about beginning with law enforcement, moving to courts, to jails, to prisons, to probation, parole, it's more than just the jail, and it's more than just the prison. But it's this whole continuum. And as we go through this continuum, the biggest part of the funnel are people who get caught up in the you know, revolving wheel of being picked up, being taken to jail. And we know so little about the number of people who are coming into our jails, the change in those numbers over time, and what things we're doing that might be working and what things that we know don't work. So, for instance, like knowing that people with mental illness are spending twice as long for the same crime as uh, in jail as people without a mental illness. Um, those are important things, that we know that the youth who are in our child welfare system who have abuse or neglect issues uh, as children, over 50% of them end up as adults in the criminal legal system. Hmm. So these are important things, but they're things that are very difficult to uncover. They're not known. And I think that that's the travesty, yeah. is not knowing. So, so that phrase, 
missing data is missing people. Let's talk about that, how you come up with that, and, and what you mean when you say that. Well, first of all, I can't take credit for it. It's the <laughs> lieutenant governor's. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, we did an op-ed with the lieutenant governor, and he repeated that in that op-ed. But it's so poignant in saying that these are not abstract numbers. These are people. These are human beings. These are people who liberties have been taken from them, and and we we can't know the numbers. We do not know on a year-to-year basis how many people enter the jails in the various counties around the state and what that total number is. And these are people's lives. This isn't widgets we're talking about. And the fact that we don't know enough, or what we should, about this population, talk about how that plays out in the welfare of those populations. And I know a lot of people... Don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about that or worrying about that. Uh, there are a lot of people who feel as though the people who are involved in the criminal justice system or in the carceral system in particular, uh, you know, are not as valuable to our society as, as other folks. But, but talk just a little about what the consequence looks like for these missing lives, missing people. Yeah, I, I think that particularly for people who enter into um, the jail system. And these are people that, you know, we, we know. There are family members, there are friends who got picked up because they were driving on a suspended license. They were uh, picked up because, you know, they had a fine or they missed a court appearance. And so what happens is the, the further you penetrate into the criminal legal system, the more difficult it is to get out. So we already know that we have an inequitable system in terms of bail and bond, right? You can, two people can commit the same offense, but one stays in jail and another one can leave because they had the money to pay for their release. Now, they, there must not be a difference in the danger that they are to society because one did come out but because you didn't have the money, you stayed in. Now, that period of incarceration or confinement often means that you're missing work, you're, you, know, you may have childcare responsibilities. So there's a lot of consequences in not knowing who's going in and who's coming out. Hmm. Hmm. I'm talking with Cheryl Kubiak. She is the dean of the Wayne State University School of social work and one of the people who's worked on a new study about criminal justice data uh, in the state of Michigan. It it reveals that there are many things we don't know about the people who are involved in the criminal justice system in our state. Uh, And uh, the study points us to, I think, uh, a real concern about why that's true and what the consequences of that missing data actually is. Uh, We'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you think when you hear that Michigan doesn't know how many people are involved in the criminal justice system, uh, especially when you hear that juveniles are part of that missing data, that we don't know how many children, for instance, are in the state's juvenile justice system? What do you think when you hear that it's impossible right now to measure something like recidivism in Michigan because of this missing data. Uh, also, do you have any confidence that the criminal justice system is actually working? Is this a sign that we're not really getting what we should uh, out of the billions of dollars we spend on criminal justice each year here in Michigan? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Cheryl, before we go to listeners, I want to talk about the juvenile end of this, uh, which I think is particularly troubling. You note uh, that we have no idea how many children are in our juvenile justice system in Michigan. So... What does that mean for those children and for our ability to make sure that the juvenile justice system is working? 
I think that it's really important to point out that Michigan is a very decentralized state, and a lot of what's going on in the criminal legal system happens at a county level. And because of the Headley Amendment, counties cannot be mandated to do anything unless the state pays for it. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about the juvenile justice system and youth in the state who are sentenced by county-level courts to various sentences, nowhere is that data captured, particularly when it comes to youth detention, because youth can be detained in facilities out of state as well as in state. So that, that, that creates a, an issue because we know that, first of all, 50% of youth are, are usually diverted early on, and they go to programming but we don't know what's happening in those programs in terms of the success of those programs. And that, too, is an important catalyst from county to county. What programs are working? What programs are putting youth back on the right track, if you will, and keeping them out of the criminal legal system? Hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here. On the phones, let's go to Rich in Huntington Woods. Rich, welcome to the program. Uh, hi. Um, hi, Stephen, and hi, hi Cheryl. Um, I just turned on the radio, and it's an amazing, so important what you're sharing, Cheryl, and Steve, for bringing it up. Um, I just want to challenge this thing we don't know. I think we do know. I think we don't want to know. I think we need to look at the values that, it, as Steve emphasized, has made these folks. Uh, marginal, have made these folks not necessary, have created an underclass, and we don't care as long as it's based on race, disability, youth, and I think it's a question of caring. It's not a question of knowing. It's mm. a question of what values. So can you talk to the values behind this important study you're doing? Mm. Uh, Rich, really appreciate the call and the really thoughtful question. Uh, Dr. Kubiak, uh uh, talk about what what he's uh, pointing to here. Yeah, I, I agree with you that there the data is there, and it's our will or our values that dictate how we get at it and do we get at it. And so that looking at, um, I'll just give you one example. Um, I was part of the jails task force led by Lieutenant Governor and Bridget McCormick, mm -hmm. and we know there was important legislation that was passed as part of that. Now, will we be able to even go back and look at, did that legislation make a difference, right? And, and we can't right now unless we go prospectively and somebody funds a study to get that jail data again. We can't do that. We know that um, if you're familiar with the uh, crew report out of Washtenaw County, uh, the Citizens for Racial Inequity, uh, they put together as citizens, they went to public kiosks in the courtroom to collect data around sentencing practices. Hmm. Now, you know, they, they issued a report, and the report led, led to some having some variation in their sentencing practices. But the citizens had to get together and look at public kiosks. We're not examining that across the board. Yet we have the data. We just don't have that data integrated or accessible. And that accessibility of that data and the transparency of that data is, I think, the values that we have to uncover because I think that the, the hidden nature or holding on to it and not wanting to share it serves us poorly as a state, as taxpayers, mm. as policymakers, and as citizens. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I want to talk about how this report and the data in it and the missing data that we have in in uh, in the criminal justice system fits into the larger sense of structural inequality here in Michigan as it relates to criminal justice that's something we talk about an awful lot here on the show uh, it strikes me that this is another dimension of that conversation in some ways yeah absolutely because I, I think that to tackle a problem, you have to be able to identify a problem. 
and to identify the problem, you need a certain openness. And that openness to that data sharing or that data transparency isn't just, you know, like m me as a researcher who loves data, if I want to go to the state and get data, data use agreements and legalities, of course. But when different state-level government actors do not share data with each other about identifying these structural inequities, then I think we have a larger problem mm. and a larger opportunity for the leadership um, that's been expressed by our lieutenant governor, and both in the task force and both in kicking off uh, a data convening with us recently. But, you know, the, we have an opportunity with the American Rescue Plan dollars for one-time infrastructure monies to really shine a spotlight on this and say, what kind of a state do we want to be? Wow. So uh, let's extend that question. What kind of state do we want to be? How do we become the state that we might want to be? And I think that's probably somewhat debatable depending on whom you ask, but how do we do better with this? You point out that this is data that really is kept at the county level at this point by, uh, by county governments that are underfunded, that uh, are not particularly focused on the welfare of this population in, in, in every instance. So, so what is a beginning point, I guess, for a conversation about how we might be better? Yeah. I think that at the at the county level, there there are certain data uh, that are available. At the state level, there's certain data that are available. And how do we get that county level data to some central repository at the state level? And I think that that takes some conversations about what are we willing to risk, and uh, I think that. There's a protection that everybody is, is afraid that they'll be penalized for what their data shows. And I think that it's really important to say, well, you know, let's have a starting point. Let's have a starting line. And from here, go forward. Because everyone really is committed to that. I mean, people really do want this data but there's a lot of barriers to get through. And I think that there is enough commonality and enough desired um, collaborative purpose that we can get there, but this is not a short-term fix. This is not something that in the next year or two we're going to be able to have these state-level repositories and that there will be data sharing not only among criminal legal, but if you think criminal legal and mental health or criminal legal and substance abuse. But we're trying to say, let's be realistic. Let's put out a 10-year planning process. And let's figure out where we can start even to integrate this data at a county level and push it upwards. Hmm. Um, OK, uh, Cheryl Kubiak, it was really great uh, to talk to you about this. I, before you go, I want to give you a chance to update us on the work that has been taking place at the state level, in particular, looking at these, uh, looking at these issues, uh, the the study, the commission on on jails and jailing here in the state, the wider criminal justice reforms that the lieutenant governor and uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice Bridget McCormick are involved in. Where are we in this, I guess, reconsideration of criminal justice in Michigan? Yeah, I, I think the, the jail task force is into an implementation phase mm -hmm. where they're looking at some of these new laws. Uh, on the juvenile justice side, you know, Raise the Age uh, went into effect uh, October 1st, uh, raising the legal age from 17 to 18 for um, uh, consideration as an adult. Um, Justice McCormick has begun the Judicial Council to look at kind of courts in general. The state court administrator's office is looking at, you know, ways that they can integrate and create consistency in the data that we do collect because various counties have differing definitions. So there are those things that are underway. Um, 
you know, we've been working with the Sheriff's Association in Michigan to talk about how can we consolidate jail data because we do not have a central repository. So the data convening that we started September 17th will we'll continue to try to formulate that blueprint, but it's going to take a lot of effort. And I know that we have the support of uh, Lieutenant Governor and Bridget McCormick and Tom Boyd from the State Court Administrator's Office, and we're working with Michigan Association of Counties and judges. So I'm hopeful that we can derive a plan that will be successful in the long run. Mm. And uh, talk about the bipartisan nature of these efforts, which I think is really important here in Michigan. There are so many things that we can't get done because the government is divided and uh, Republicans control the legislature, but not the governor's office, uh, not the not all aspects of uh, the courts. Uh, but this is a this is a place where we've seen significant cooperation by lots of different lots of different interests. Yeah, I'm very grateful for that, and I think that there is a window here. Um, if, if this is one thing that people can agree on, and, and we do have legislators on this advisory board that we've put together, and uh, I'll say that um, Sarah Leitner, the uh, Republican House member from uh, the Jackson area, has been really wonderful in trying to uh, illuminate these issues in the House, and you know, Senator Chang has been working with us, and she's got some legislation around crisis response that's coming up this week. but. These are bipartisan efforts, and they're bipartisan issues that not only have a human cost, but an incredible fiscal cost in terms mm -hmm. of the cost of confinement, court processing, supervision. So I appreciate the commitment on both sides. Okay. Uh, Dr. Cheryl Kubiak, Dean of the Wayne State University School of Social Work. Uh, it's always great to have you here as a guest on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for coming by to share the really important information in this study. Thanks so much, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk with legal scholar and author Anita Hill about her new book, Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. When I was asked by a representative of this committee to report my experience I felt that I had to tell the truth. I could not keep silent. That is the voice of Anita Hill 30 years ago, testifying in the U.S. Senate confirmation hearings for now Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. It was during Hill's testimony that she detailed her accusations of sexual harassment against Thomas when the two worked together in the U.S. Department of Education and later at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. It was a moment that forever changed the conversation in America about sexual harassment and gender violence. Now, three decades later, Hill has a new book that explores the through lines between her experiences coming forward in 1991 and what we're seeing today with the Me Too movement and the backlash that women sometimes still face. Her book is called Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. And Anita Hill joins me now to talk about it. Uh, Anita Hill, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me on your program. So first, there might be some people in our audience who don't remember or who weren't old enough to experience what you did and what you went through 30 years ago. 
So let's start there. How did you decide that you would come forward with your accusations against then-judge Clarence Thomas and talk about what happened, how big a deal that was in 1991? Well, first of all, it's, it's good for the public to know that um, I was approached by a staffer on the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee um, and asked if I knew of and any experience of, of sexual misconduct on the part of the nominee, Clarence Thomas. So that approach then led me to do uh, some investigation as to not only not when I would come forward, uh, but how I would come forward, what the process would be for me to come forward, who I would talk to, how I would give my statement. Um, it, it, in, in the sort of, that's just the process. Mm -hmm. But in terms of my thinking, uh, my decision to provide the information uh, was based on the fact that I knew that what I had to say was relevant to their consideration, the committee's consideration of the character and fitness of an individual who was being vetted uh, to sit on the country's highest court in a lifetime appointment. Mm. And uh, for those who, again, were not uh, maybe even alive in 1991, uh, but, but maybe not paying all of the attention that many of us were, Talk about the, the process and how harrowing it was, the response to the things that you said and revealed in that Senate testimony. Well, I think a lot of people have actually gone back and looked at the process, uh, and, and uh, especially after 2018, mm -hmm. uh, when Christine Blasey Ford faced that same Senate Judiciary Committee, mm -hmm. some, some new members. Uh, but some of the same old members that had been there 30 years before, or 28 years before when she uh, testified. So I, I think, the, you know, that's a good example of what the process was like. It was harrowing. It was unclear. There were attacks on my credibility. There were attacks on my character. Um, and I, um, and of course, there were attacks on, on the validity of, of, my uh, my experience, whether my experience even really mattered in terms of, of uh, a consideration for who should be on the court. So, um, you know, to put all of that together, uh, you know, I, I actually have written a book about, about that experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I, I think, um, think about what happened in 2018 uh, and, and uh, in many ways, in terms of the process itself, there wasn't enough difference to uh, to for us to say that 2018 was strikingly different uh, from what happened in 1991. Yeah, I, I think the, that many of the members in 1991 were much bolder in uh, denouncing. Um, the whole concept of sexual harassment is something that was relevant to their consideration. So in the introduction to your new book, you write, my goals for this book are as enormous as the problem itself. The issue, the problem, is nothing short of a national crisis. In seeking to change the way we think and talk about gender violence, I run the risk of biting off more than I can chew, but my goal only matches the size of the crisis. Add actually changing what we do about gender-based violence, and I'm sure to be labeled as too ambitious. Um, let's pull the lens 30 years forward and, and talk about what you're saying now and how it relates to 1991 and the things that happened uh, in that Senate hearing room? Immediately after the hearing, uh, I was approached uh, through letters, through emails. Well, emails weren't so prevalent then. Uh, but since uh, then, emails. Uh, through uh, what telegrams, actually, which were present at the time, uh, for, with 
I was approached by people with who who wanted to share their experiences of abusive behavior. And there was a whole range of that behavior. There was bullying in school. There was sexual harassment and assault in, in, um, among, among elementary students. And um, there was sexual harassment and assault on college campuses. Uh, there was uh, intimate partner violence stories that came to me, stories of incest. You know, I sort of cap it all off. Uh, very shortly after the hearing, I, I had a call from uh, a man. You know, I'd expected to hear from women talking about sexual harassment, but I this, did not expect this call. It was a call from a man who said that he had been an incest victim and that he had attempted to tell his parents that he was being abused, but they dismissed him. Uh, they accused him of making it up. Um, and, and he said when he watched the hearing that the senators reminded him of his family members who had abandoned him basically um, and, and left him to deal with his problem of being violated on his own and um, taken the side of the person who had abused him. And he said to me, you've opened a whole can of worms. So rather than seeing this problem as a problem of sexual harassment, I'm seeing it through the eyes of all of the victims and survivors who I have, have, uh, have heard from and whose stories I try to share as many as possible as I can in, in this book. Because for me, the problem is bigger than me. It's bigger than sexual harassment. It's bigger than 1991. And it is much more urgent than what we recognize uh, and our leaders recognize in this country. Hmm. I'm talking with Anita Hill. She's a professor of social policy, law, and women's and gender studies at Brandeis University. Her new book is Believing our 30-year journey to end gender violence. Uh, We would love to hear from you during this conversation as well. How far do you think we've come in the last 30 years in terms of awareness of sexual harassment and gender violence? How far do you think we still have to go? And what does it signal to you that we had both the Me Too movement gain traction around the same time that President Donald Trump, who bragged about sexually assaulting women, was elected. Uh, We especially want to hear from you if you remember the Clarence Thomas hearings in 1991 and Anita Hill's testimony. Uh, Talk about how you look back on that moment and how you think it informs the things that we're discussing and dealing with today. Uh, How did you and the people around you react to the things that were being revealed at that time, and how big of a deal was that for your own awareness of sexual harassment then and now? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to include you in the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Professor Hill, before we get to before we get to callers, I want to talk about uh, President Joe Biden, who was was a U.S. senator and was in fact the chair of the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee. He was the person who ran the hearings at which you testified. Uh, he's been criticized for a really long time for the way he handled that situation. Uh, what was it that you believe? he did wrong in that role. And what did that mean for you personally? Well, my feeling was that he, he allowed, uh, he allowed unsupported uh, statements by some senators just to go unchallenged. Um, but most importantly, I think there were three witnesses who had their own accounts of inappropriate behavior uh, by Clarence Thomas, who were not allowed to testify in the public hearing. Uh, That, I think, is probably the most egregious 
uh, uh, failure on his part. Uh, the fact that there were other people who could corroborate, not my experience, but their own experience, that was similar experiences that were similar to mine, and that they were, you know, they were uh, allowed to put statements in the written record, but were not allowed to be seen and heard by the American public, a public that was glued to the television set to try to get some clarity on these issues. And that, that clarity was denied in terms of their testimony. Um, but I think one has to go through the whole hearing to understand that uh, from the intake to the investigation to the outcome in the voting um, uh, to, to move the nomination forward, there were flaws. Mm. And but but let me, can I just add though that you know but, but at this moment uh, Joe Biden is president. Um, he was elected president of, of this country. Um, what I want people to take away from this is that we need leaders, and that includes Joe Biden, to take this issue issue seriously, to commit and acknowledge uh, the depth of the problem. And that's why I, I wanted to really spell out in sort of long form all of the issues that our, our country is facing in terms of gender violence. I wanted it to be spelled out because only when you see the whole of the issue do you see the enormity of it. And then you can begin to understand why it is the responsibility of the leader of this country to acknowledge it, commit resources to it, and to begin to work at every level in the government to address it. We already know that there's a problem throughout our government, not only our government offices and workers, uh, because that information has been collected. We know specifically that two Supreme Court justices have been accused. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that Numerous uh, other officials, congressmen and, and senators over the years have been accused and with very limited success in terms of getting to the bottom of it because the processes have failed to actually reveal much about what has gone on. Um, and we know tragically that the military year after year, you hear in some uh, branch of the military that sexual harassment and assault and, and even murders related to those activities uh, are going on in the military. So how do we, how do we address that? Um, so my, my book suggested we address it through the president. And, and that is why the book is also a plea to uh, now, President Biden. Hmm. We should do just a little reclamation, I guess, uh, of of the president's reputation. Uh, Carmen on Twitter asked whether you ever received an apology from anyone on that hearing committee, particularly its leader, Joe Biden. You did. In 2019, you got a call from Joe Biden. I, I wonder if you can talk just a little about what he said. Well, the, the gist of what he said was that he was very sorry that his management of the hearing caused me harm, uh, which it did. You know, there were threats to my life, threats to my family, threats to my friends, friends lost jobs. There, were, there was harm. Um, and I appreciated the apology to me. But what... I failed to hear in his apology was an acknowledgement of how many people, not only victims and survivors who want justice and who want to be heard, but to many people who saw that hearing, witnessed that hearing, saw it as a huge disappointment, as as a, a, that 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 impacted their trust in our country and our country's willingness to take on this problem and to address it appropriately and to hear from victims and uh, of, of the youth. And, and so 
That is what I, I think it the job of the president to rectify. And not just Joe Biden, but every president that comes along owns this problem because of the high level of its prevalence and the enormous harm that it's causing throughout our institutions. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation uh, with Anita Hill. We want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us what you remember of uh, Professor Hill's appearance before the Senate Judiciary Committee in 1991 during the confirmation hearings for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, tell us what you think uh, we've learned over that 30 years. How are things different today than they were then? How much more work do we have to do? You can also go to Facebook or to Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. My guest is Anita Hill. She's a professor of social policy, law, and women's and gender studies at Brandeis University. Her new book is Believing Our 30 Year Journey to End Gender Violence. She is also, of course, uh, someone who testified before the Senate. Judiciary Committee in 1991 as it was considering the nomination of then-Judge Clarence Thomas to be a Supreme Court justice. Uh, She revealed uh, interactions with uh, Judge Thomas uh, that that, uh, were surprising and shocking, I think, to many people. Uh, They were about uh, sexual harassment that uh, he had committed against her uh, about a climate of sexual harassment that she had experienced uh, uh, working with him. Uh, They did not derail his confirmation, but they did ignite a national conversation that has been going on for 30 years. The question now is how different are things? How differently are we managing uh, sexual harassment and gender violence. Uh, We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Do you remember that testimony 30 years ago? What do you think of it? What did you think of it then? What do you think of it now? What do you think of what we've learned in the 30 years since and how different things are? As always, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Gretchen in Gross Point. Gretchen, welcome to the program. Hi. Hi. Um, I was just thinking that I was about to start my professional career. I was just about to graduate from college when all of this was on the TV. And I, you know, had kind of heard about sexual harassment before, but not realized that, you know, it it was so prevalent. And I think that that is what has really changed is that our awareness of it, you know, we've come miles in that respect for how you know far we've come. But as far as it changing or people stopping, I, I think we've maybe come afoot. Mm-hmm. So I, I really don't think that, you know, that it has changed only that people are more aware of it. Hmm. You know, that's an interesting mm-hmm. that's an interesting observation, Gretchen. Uh, Professor Hill, before I ask you to respond, I want to tell you just a bit about uh, my perspective on this. So in 1991, I was 20 years old. I was a college senior. Uh, and I remember very vividly, um, you know, watching um, watching the hearings and uh, and taking in what was what was going on. But I, had, I also remember uh, being kind of shocked by the issue and not understanding, I think, the, the broader context of it and, and things like that. Fast forward to um, uh, the recent testimony that Christine Blasey Ford gave 
uh, in front of the same committee, and uh, I was in the car with my son uh, while we were listening to that. He was 15 at the time. And I was really struck by how much more he knew and understood about what was transpiring during that hearing and what she was talking about uh, and the context that it fit in than I was as a 20-year-old back in the, back in 1991. And in some ways, I suppose, that goes to Gretchen's comment that it's awareness that has changed fundamentally between 1991 and, and now. I wonder if you watched those hearings, uh, the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, uh, and drew the same kind of conclusion. Yes, as a matter of fact, and I think Gretchen is absolutely right. Awareness has increased. It began actually in 1991 when we had a public conversation about uh, of sexual harassment and, 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 and your 20 year old self who were, was able to hear and understand those, those conversations. Um, it, it, it increased over the years through, uh, in large part, I think, to movements on college campuses and researchers, uh, a woman named Louise Fitzgerald, who is a pioneer in the research on this, did a tremendous amount of work to, to raise awareness uh, as, as part of her research in, in, on colleges and, and impacted uh, teaching throughout the country. Um, in addition, of course, there were movements like the Me Too movement. Uh, but there were also advocacy groups that have grown up to address uh, the needs uh, of survivors uh, and victims. So we're, we're having a much more open, uh, open conversation about the behavior. But there are two things that are missing uh, in terms of what we need to do to make change. Um, one is to address the cultural myths that continue. Hmm that the problem isn't that bad. Uh, that was a phrase that Arlen Specter, Senator Arlen Specter used over and again in, in questioning me and talking about my experience that it wasn't so bad because uh, I didn't say that he had touched me um, or, uh, or it wasn't so bad because, you know, talking about porn and, and ongoing conversations about porn went in the workplace as he said, was, you know, that's just stuff people do. Um, and so we we hear these kinds of messages over and over again. Even we tell our children um, that we tell them things aren't so bad or that they should, should, shouldn't complain about it or that in, in, or in worst case scenario that, you know, maybe they're doing something to cause it to happen. So those are the cultural things that still exist that I still hear I heard, um, I got an email recently about a, a, a girl who had been punished when she reported sexual assault. This was an elementary school hmm. girl who's had a recess taken away from her because she reported what would be a, a sexual assault on her and was told that she was inappropriate. And so she had a recess taken. So these are the cultural things that need to be fixed. We The way we talk and, and think uh, about victimhood and and the uh, victim victim blaming and denial and dismissiveness that we engage in many times inadvertently, mm. but still it's harmful to both the victim as well as their abuser who believes that that behavior become, is normalized. And so they continue to do it. Mm. Mm. And then finally, there are the, the processes just like the Senate hearing uh, was uh, was a flawed process, there are flawed processes going on to address it all around the country. Um, and just, you know, I've heard the stories from just about every quarter. Um, they're much more prevalent now. All you have to do is think about the testimony of those Olympic gymnasts last month. Um, and now the, 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 the women's soccer, the stories that are coming out of women's soccer uh, about abuse that was allowed to go on because the processes weren't there to eliminate it. So that's what we have to work on. We've got to work on the culture that supports it and the processes that have that uh, culture of silencing and denial built into. Them. 
Yeah. So we've only got about a minute left, but I do want to interject another question from a caller. Nick in Detroit says both Kavanaugh and Thomas lied under oath. Why no action to censor them or remove them? Uh, you're someone who is, you know, a, a very close watcher of the court and very familiar with that process. Uh, again, I've got just a minute left, but I'm curious, Professor Hill, what you think about what consequences maybe they should have faced. Well, I, I'm I'm not an expert on the process of removal from the court, mm-hmm. but my understanding is that uh, removal uh, of a Supreme Court justice uh, is very is, is very limited range uh, that can be applied or uh, or a process that can be applied to remove a Supreme Court justice. Uh, and I don't know what that is. And there are experts and, mm-hmm. and they can better inform you than I can. But what I, I, I want people to understand is that, yes, those things are important. And, and I think that would restore more confidence in the court. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other things that we can do in, our, in the institutions in which we exist every day, where this is an everyday problem. Mm-hmm. And there's new energy behind doing that. Um, and so I think now is the time, and I hope people feel engaged and hopeful that we can make a difference. Okay, uh, Anita Hill, it was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for uh, joining us to talk about your new book and all of this history. Thank you. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when Detroit mayoral candidate Anthony Adams is going to join the program to talk about his challenge to incumbent Mayor Mike Duggan. We'll also hear from historian and author Keisha Blaine on her upcoming book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's enduring message to America.